ZK login is pretty much what we feel is one of the most advanced technologies invented in crypto in the last five, six years. And this is a scheme that allows anybody with an existing Web2 account to engage with the blockchain without a third party. Now, the great thing about that is you're not giving your private data to some third party who custodies it. It's effectively the chain that gives every app in the suite because it's an app functionality, which means for the first time, billions of people with an existing Web2 account can use the blockchain. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. March is just around the corner, and I wanted to make sure to give you a quick reminder to not top tick your prices of your DAS London tickets. If you use codes 0x10 at checkout, you can lock in a 10% discount on your ticket. Don't miss out on your chance to get ahead of the curve. I'll see you in London. Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We have a great episode lined up today with Evan and Adani, co-founders at Meister Labs, which is delivering the benefits of Web3 with the ease of Web2. Today is Friday, February 9th, and as a reminder, be sure to use code 0xresearch10 at app.blockworksresearch.com for 10% off your annual subscription. Now on to the interview with Edvin and Adani. Thank you so much both for coming on today. Of course, thanks for having us. All right, so I'm going to dive right into it. Last episode, we had Brendan Farmer from Polygon come on, and he basically started by saying that no single chain can scale to that of the internet. And to kick off the conversation, <laughs> can you say whether you agree or disagree with that and why? Com- completely disagree. Uh, and and that's, that's, uh, it's almost like back in the days when you people are using dial-up modems and say, well, you know, this is, this is like how much more you can do, right? You can push to, you know, 1024, right? It's like, wow, right? Uh, you have to think differently, right? So a lot of the problem with the blockchain limitations, all the focus about scalability is, well, they are doing a lot of things that's wasteful. Uh, the architecture doesn't allow you to scale uh, the way the kind of Web2 infrastructure can scale. Uh, if you use cloud infrastructure, you never worry about scalability issue. Uh, so, you know, they can, they can, they can increase uh, capacity to meet demand. Uh, this is what's needed for, for this industry as well. And, and the fact, right, our, our stance is, well, we have architecture, we know it's going to scale to meet whatever it's necessary. We don't need to meet scale to millions of transactions because it would be wasteful. But when the demand continues to increase, the way we know it's going to continue to increase will be right there, right? You build architecture correctly. You break out the box of what blockchain look like. And if you look inside SWE, look at the diagram, look at the, the stages, how it process transaction, then you understand. Um, no, this is uh, very, very, very much a misunderstanding what technology progress look like. Yeah, probably back that out is if you look at the makeup of our team, the background is very steeped into building large-scale distributed systems, systems that power billions of users. Um, Google never turns away um, business because it doesn't have the capacity to scale. The whole business premise is the ability to actually take all your all your data, all your workload, and actually run it on cloud. So we have exactly the same premise. So our background really talks of that, and uh, the technology we have ultimately allows that to happen. Yeah, and and the the one thing that's really really important to point out is while everyone else is still building a blockchain that basically look the same at a very high level architecturally, right? So mem- mempool, consensus, execution, then writing the results into authenticated data structure, right? That, of course, you're going to run. You keep on building a faster dial modem, you're going to run out your, your headroom, 
Uh, so we we didn't do that. We say, okay, let's forget about that. And this is we want to want to build a architecture is completely different. What that also means, we have to change other parts of the entire system. The data model has to be very different. So you expose all the information you need to be able to scale. So you expose all the information you need, so you don't do wasteful work like doing consensus or ordering of transaction. They have no storage and everything. Else. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not about parallelized execution, it's parallelized the entire pipeline, including the ordering part. Okay. So that that's that's how you do things. All right. Yeah. No, that's a great follow-up to my next question. There are a lot of next gen L1s out there in the wild, such as Aptos, say, and probably hundreds of others these days. What is Sway's primary differentiator from all of these newer chains? Yeah. Um so first of all, we you're going to see us not really paying attention to the scalability debate uh, because it's, in our opinion, that's soft, right? Uh, our background is, you know, collectively we build a lot of kind of products and developer platforms and tooling in the past that reach many millions or billions of devices or, or humans. We think long-term, we think more in terms of top-down, right? What we, value we're trying to deliver to the world, what changes we want to affect, uh, and then how do you build the kind of platform that enable the product developers to build new kinds of uh, products and business and reach many, many millions, hundreds of millions of customers. We think very differently, uh, so we build very differently. So we want to focus a lot more on the hard problems the consumer developers are facing, which is coordination across, you know, across lots of different, you know, kind of functions, applications, and product, right? So the way you think about things today is everything is very much a custody kind of model or a silo. You enter into a service, any kind of large-scale service, you basically, in a way, so it, Go ahead and custody my information, custody my data, I trust you, or custody my asset, such as my photos, my video, whatever. You can share with my my network and all that. You can do whatever you want with it, right? I have little control over. So remember, the whole premises of blockchain is not just to turn everything into tokens, right? It's 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 a coordination. It's a platform for coordination. Consumer in the middle and they coordinate with the product and service say, you can, now you can use my my resource, my information for this, and we can use, somebody else can, right? You're cutting across this, the silo. So we're solving a lot of these kind of problems. So how do you build these kind of product? What tools do you need to build these kind of product? What is a consumer product experience should look like, right? That's why we're pushing very hard into latency. Everybody's have their favorite time to, uh, finality numbers, they all kind of block time, right? It's like, that's the first stage of the transaction processing. We're talking end-to-end, end-to-end, like everything finalized on the blockchain, nothing ever changes, right? No no, no guesses, right? Uh, or anything. We're going to get to two to three round trip depending on the, the kind of transactions. So two to three round trip, just so you know, roughly 200 milliseconds around trip around the world, right? Be- between London and, and New York, right? So you're talking 400 to 600 milliseconds, real finality. Why is that important? That's consumer experience, right? Consumer don't wait for things. Why do we have things like ZK logging? Well, 
onboarding problem, solving the problem, um, you know, all these things. Um, that's that's what we're about. Yeah, I want to I want to touch in on that. That the the folks you mentioned are just simply building a blockchain. We're we're building a really large scale development platform that empowers people to build products um, that enables ownership. Um, now, in reality, if you look at all the things that we've built, yes, there's a blockchain, and yes, we solved the scalability problem. Sui doesn't have a max TPS. You just keep adding more workers, and Sui scales um, infinitely. Um, the other benefit is all the things we're building around um, developer uh, adoption and also enabling developers to build powerful applications. Evan touched briefly on ZK Login. ZK Login is pretty much what we feel is one of the most advanced technologies invented in crypto in the last five, six years. And this is a scheme that allows anybody with an existing Web2 account to engage with the blockchain without a third party. Now, the great thing about that is you're not giving your private data to some third party who custodies it. You're not effectively, um, it's a blockchain that verifies your, your login, which is super powerful and very, very unique to SWE, which means every app in SWE has a power of Magic Link. You don't have to integrate Magic Link. You don't have to integrate some, um, some third party solution that you charge for. It's effectively the chain that gives every app in this ecosystem that functionality, which means for the first time, billions of people with an existing Web2 account can use the blockchain. And the other addition is the fact that we have something called sponsored transactions. Sponsored transactions allows you to transact on the blockchain without paying gas, which means now you can't, you not only can able to log in to, a, um, uh, to any of the apps in SWE using an email or any kind of Facebook account or whatever Web2 account you like, but you can also transact in SWE without ever taking gas, which means we've given Web3 builders the ability to build Web2 UX in the most seamless possible way. And now you can have wallets that simply would either sponsor all your transactions because they have a partnership with a DEX or some other kind of um, uh, application ecosystem. You've got to build these real kind of relationships between applications that are incentives-based. And I think that's a real power. And you're going to see more and more of these ingenious um um, capabilities come to SWE. We have a feature coming this year that lets you effectively transact on SWE without even an internet connection. That's unheard of. These are the levels of, uh, of, of invention that you need to come up with to make crypto go to billions of users. Being able to send transactions without paying gas, being able to use your email or whatever identity you have to transact, being able to send money across the world without ever worrying about internet connection. These are the things that have really set SWE apart while everyone's just building a blockchain in our view. Well, I, I want to come back to just the blockchain, right? Part even the blockchain is very different. Uh, so, Sui with a data model can scale storage, which is very, very different. Um, so, obviously, you don't want to store your video on chain, but you need to create like vibrant and complex asset that represent actual real world assets. An asset, you know, re con contains a lot more than just a link to a JPEG. So, uh, to be able to store on chain, uh, and, you know, scale storage, also have the data model allow you to specify any kind of complex types and for objects, asset to be composable, uh, that allow you to build very, very powerful, very different kind of applications. So uh, the one, the reason why SWE is starting to take off uh, recently is because of that developer has figured out, it's like, wait, this is the level of composability, permissions composability they never experienced elsewhere. So DeFi builder are the first one to figure that out. How to use programmable transaction blocks to really do this kind of, you know, code composability across lots of different protocols, and you build better product. That's and guess what? 
traders is telling me to make more money and then everybody's coming, right? That's why not only our TVO is growing, our transaction volume is in the 100 million now for a couple of days in a row. We're in the top four, top five now. And then the same thing I fig- people are figuring out, say, wait, data composability, this is what's about, right? You can think about almost like in a gaming model, it's like you have your thorough, they have inventory, then your sword can, you can add more things to your magic sword to be make more powerful that level of composability. So there's a lot of things that are very, very different. Uh, perhaps the way we summarize it is, well, it's like almost like everybody is 2D, we're playing a 3D game kind of thing. You know, these assets are self-enforcing in terms of the rules about transfer and everything else. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about this uh, in the coming uh, weeks and months. Uh, but but yeah, it, it's really is not a blockchain that other can compare, right? It's very, very different in a lot of different ways. Yeah, that sounds really exciting, especially that point about uh, not needing an internet connection. To I'd love to dive into that later a bit more. I think one thing that many of our listeners are probably relatively familiar with is sort of Ethereum's data storage model or perhaps, for example, Solana's account-based uh, storage model. But Sway has this sort of like object-oriented storage model. So would you mind just briefly running us through that and perhaps also talking about the implications, right? Ethereum is really struggling with data availability layers today. There's like a whole host of like other data availability layers. Does this object-oriented model fundamentally mean that, for example, Sway needs much less data availability compared to like other type of like storage models? What's the trade-offs here? Yeah, the way you think about it is uh, Solidity, I mean, Ethereum or any other chance right now is basically one giant global state where everything mixed together, right? So... You know, that's the same model with processing transactions, everything, right? So you have Marco tree. Uh, so, so you kind of have, you know, the, the storage overhead as the tree goes bigger and bigger, it becomes very significant. So then you have to, when you're reading, you also have to tease apart which part of your data you care it's about. Uh, we, we have a completely different model where it's not, you know, a company is where it's everybody, every, you know, it's a global sort of object store put it that way. And it's really each one of them represent an asset or, or a smart contract is an asset and how they interact with each other, right? That's the mental model you have to shift around. It's asset-based. Rules are also encoded in the asset rather than being enforced by by human. So so all that uh, makes the problem completely different when you think about scale, you know, kind of availability, data availabilities and how do you read so one of the things we are going, we're working, you know, it's possible with three is, uh, you know, this, this, the ability for you to only focus on the states you care about. If you're building application, you have a game, you have a consumer product, you know exactly which are the objects that, that you care about. You don't care about all the other states. So the, the reading part of the suite can become very different. Uh, you can think about a, a light client being constructed very differently. There's a lot of active work happening uh, in the area right now. On the consensus side of things, we has two consensus protocols, one for more simple transactions and one for uh, transactions that touch the same object. Can you kind of walk into these two and how they work? Yeah, so so uh, to be clear, you don't need consensus for owned object. Think about it, it's, you know, it's a, the, the easiest way to think about it is in in the real world, if, if I this is my cup and my cup only, nobody else can touch it. 
if I want to do something with this, I don't need consensus. I don't need ordering. Uh, I don't need to worry about somebody else trying to grab the same resource, grab my cup. Right? It's mine. No one can touch it. So I transfer to Edony right now. It just happens. So the process is more of a broadcast, making sure everybody knows this is happening. Everybody is okay. Everybody validate this is a valid transaction and you don't go through the consensus, right? That's the fast pass. Uh, so so that that's what, what works, right? So uh, the pipeline, I'm not going to go into the detail describing it without, without whiteboard. It's too hard to describe without whiteboard, but, but it's basically a broadcast and then followed by, if you go, if you share object, like your, your smart contract for minting NFT, everybody can send a transaction to that same object, touching the same object, there's contention, then now you actually do need to order them. In that case, you go through consensus, right? So it's sort of like this two-stage thing. And if you're a fast pass, if you own object, you just go through the fast pass. You don't need to go through consensus. It's, it's important to denote the difference, right? Like in Sui, there is real asset ownership, right? What Evan just described, the fact that he can hold a cup and it's in his hand, is because his keys own that actual asset. Nobody else does. In Ethereum, the difference is it's a contract that owns the asset and you have to engage with the contract to command and control that asset. And you can have, you could essentially have the contract take the asset and you're screwed. SWE is very, very different. The security model allows for um, actual, you know, users to own the assets that, they, that they've, they've, they've purchased and define rules around how those assets are transferred. It, it also allows us to, we have these great mechanisms that enforce royalties as well, you know, Web3 was promised as this great technology for creators where you can create a piece of artwork and then you can monetize the royalties over time because you, you know, it's, it's a new uh, model for freeing um, creators to actually, you know, monetize um, the great work that they do only to have Web3 rug them and have it be by human consensus as to who pays royalties versus not. Sweet doesn't do that. SWE allows a, a creator to freely define what kind of royalties they want to, whether they want to make it harshly enforced or enforceable or not at all. So, you know, if I, we have a, a standard called SWE kiosk, which in, it effectively allows um, designers to build an asset, store it within a kiosk, and this kiosk will specify what conditions need to be met before the asset can be transferred outside of a kiosk into another. So it means now I could specify that this asset will not transfer on Mondays. Or this asset will not transfer if the price is above X amount of dollars. Or this asset would only transfer when uh, a royalty of 20% is paid on a, on, a, on a net present value. So you start to have these really complex rules you can build around real-world assets and ownership of assets that gives developers a lot more freedom. And I think you're only going to start to see more and more of these rich interactions on SWE just because it's not possible to do that on a chain that doesn't enforce ownership as a, as a key primitive. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll touch on the consensus on, on a couple of things, right? So early on, when we talk about scalability, why we believe that we have the architecture to scale uh, the blockchains like horizontally, right? Think about it. You have two smart contracts, each one serves a different function. One is minting NFT, the other one is uh, a DEX. There's going to be naturally a cluster of transactions that target that one, the NFT smart contract, another one, you know, target the the DeFi, you know, uh, smart contract. These two groups of transactions are distinct. They have no relationship to each other, right? So now you have a mental model how you can process, including the consensus part. 
these two groups in parallel simultaneously. So, so that's, that's why, right? This is why you need to change how you represent data in the first place to be able to scale in a way that go beyond what conventional smart, uh, smart contract platform or blockchains can do. So, so very, very different uh, way of thinking about it. Another thing I was just touching on, right? I saw some people saying, well, you know, why do you need to uh, add this uh, fast pass, right? So most of the transactions are going to be shared objects. Uh, you know, you, you, you're paying the price. Oh, well, that's completely wrong. We are seeing very, very smart builders are figuring out how to leverage that fast pass, that really, really fast uh, kind of, for really, really fast, you know, commitments, um, you know, confirmation of, of trading, right? Bluefin is able to do 28 millisecond. I think something around that 28 millisecond confirmation, optimistic confirmation. But this is the kind of thing allow them to build a very, very different kind of product. And that's why they blew up, right? That's why they gave up on Patron. That's why they say, well, okay, guess what? Sui is better because even though it's a smaller community right now, it's 20 times more capital efficient for them. It's a better product experience. So again, people, too often people are thinking thinking uh, of everything around blockchain in the lens of what has been done before and, and which want to challenge the audience to, to think differently. I would probably argue that a lot of the, I guess, constraints to blockchain scaling ultimately is hindered by the fact that uh, decentralization is something that people value very highly. And you kind of have that classic blockchain trilemma. How do you guys think about decentralization and what does that look like in SWE? Uh, I think the blockchain trilemma is a completely different conversation and probably needs uh, at least a healthy 30, 45 minutes, if not an hour debate because it's... Remember that trilemma is is created is defining the lens of what a blockchain looked like back in the day when Ethereum started. Uh, we we're going to challenge that's actually wrong. So uh, decentralization. Let's talk about it, right? The well, how do you define it, right? Convent people mostly define it as number validator, which is completely wrong because it's really about they all run on some kind of hardware. A lot of them, if you look at Ethereum, what percentage it actually runs on AWS, uh, Google Cloud, and the few big, big cloud services. So you still actually have, like, look at how, you know, they're actually quite concentrated as a result. So we think about, uh, you know, so, so there's a better better sort of things we can look at. Nakamoto ratio is, is once better, right? Essentially, you you release address the one part of the 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 the, the equation. Why do you need, care about decentralization? Is it's basically making sure you're not being taken down by by you know bad actors, right? So then you talk about how many nodes you you have to go down before you your network lose liveness, that sort of thing, right? That's a little bit better, but even that it's probably incomplete. Uh, it's a very very difficult. Right, it's there's a trade-off for sure. Uh, in our case, the the trade-off is probably more latency. Then you have to figuring out what is the right balance. Uh, what is uh, when are you sufficiently decentralized? Right, remember it's about trust. Right, you don't want to trust a single company behind this. You want to trust all these different entities are sort of like keeping each other 
each other on it, right? So there's a certain number that it becomes like in practice, you're decentralizing now. Then you add other ways for individuals or business other to verify the network is doing the right thing. There's no collusion and uh, no other other funny business going on. Then you have a sufficiently decentralized system and you can't keep on growing it. Uh, you find ways to continue to basically, you know, sort of like ensuring the, the, the your, your platform don't uh, suffer the, the risk of attack or over-concentrated in a certain, uh, certain kind of a cloud service. Those things will take time. Uh, so that's the way we think about decentralization and it's it's something that we're happy to have a debate about uh but a lot of these kind of different uh topics are sort of lumped together and and that's really really not not the right way to think about it uh it's, it's the trilemma there is a trilemma but it's you know we also disagree with with the way that's defined yeah i definitely agree with you i think in general i'm in the camp of sufficiently decentralized like not everything needs like a hundred thousand nodes across the world in every single country well I mean, to be frank right it's, it's about voting power <laughs> yeah. two-third voting power move forward right so you have a lot of redundancy you have thousands of nodes but most of them have 0.0001 percent of the the voting power actually don't matter right they they are there that's that's good they have it's it's replications fail safe uh but a lot of these it's a bit of a decentralization theater uh you know so you know th those things actually don't don't matter much yeah i would agree there on the note of like sort of scalability right um i think the object model makes it so that it's easier to shard execution it's easier to skill storage because you can shard objects by owners and ids and it's easier to verify the state because you don't need to have a whole view of global state but i know like your guy's definition of sharding is slightly different from perhaps like how diff how how most people on blockchain think of sharding. For example, with near, would you mind walking through like what sharding looks like? Most are like near. They're talking about state sharding, right? So you have uh, you know, so you you may want to spread them out, uh, different distinct shards, right? Then you if you have uh, you if you want to compose across two assets or different shards, you kind of have to do some synchronization ahead of time right that's very very hard and i actually don't know where this where they are right now it's been talked about for a long time there's a reason why state sharding really hasn't taken off taken off uh or is even being implemented is because one it's very hard to get right and, and if it's not syn synchronous you have other kinds of problem um the and it's just think about the you know or if you want to do it explicitly right do you want the developer to be aware they are or not aware. Uh, so, so there's a lot of complexity and, and think about how hard it is, right. To write smart contract as it is, right. You add another dimension, you know, it's like any developer knows, right. Writing a sequential algorithm is one thing, writing a parallel algorithm is something completely different, different level of complexity. Um, in three, when we talk about sharding, it's invisible to the developer. For them, it's a one, giant space where with all these objects one global you know namespace whatever you want to call it right you all these objects you can they interact with each other you can compose it freely the sharding is the implementation detail behind the scene 
think about each validator itself can become a distributed network. That's a way to think about it in terms of mental model. You can distribute your work per validator to multiple machines. They may say, okay, this machine is responsible for certain thing, different function, or you can think about they are they they are you know focused on different hot objects and all that, right? There's a different ways you can do that. Uh, we'll publish more 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 on that. Yeah. To touch on that, think about the benefits of what we just described. Namely, for a developer, it's a better developer experience. You you're not you're not throwing it's not thrown in your face the fact that you need to figure out which particular shard is this particular asset that you're trying to engage with. So if you're working on subnets, for example, you have that intrinsic problem. You also start to have issues, right, where if you're using these things that expose developers to to uh, programmatically the shards themselves, you now have fragmented liquidity, or do you even have the ability to bridge assets across the, across the, if you wanted to? It doesn't create a really good developer experience, and actually creates a worse developer experience. If anything, you know, it starts to it, it's our our thesis is ultimately because these chains don't know how to scale; they ultimately just build replicas of the same blockchain and start to create a new world in that new blockchain. And you have this intrinsic problem of having to move assets between chains. And it's, it's, a, it's a mess, man. We, we don't think it's a way to go. We think the intra-validated sharding described here, where the infrastructure takes care of the scale, the infrastructure takes care of where um, workloads need to go, and the developer is completely not having to think about it. That's the way in which infrastructure should ultimately work. Yeah, I mean, if you look at uh, the, you know, there's how many L2s for Ethereum, they usually are replications of the ecosystem, right? Different swaps and different derivative platforms and all that, right? You don't actually can, you can't really compose across L2s, right? It's a very, very similar kind of kind of mental model when you think about sharding, even for L1, right? If it's explicit, it has to be managed by the developer or you know, automatic, right? This is different kind of, problems you are dealing with. What's up, everyone? March is approaching fast, and I want to give you another reminder not to miss out on DAS London. It is coming. It's right around the corner, and it's in March from the 18th to the 20th. We have three full days of content. This is your chance to bump shoulders with some of the world's top executives and have open dialogue with both attendees and speakers. We're going to be focusing on a range of topics that I'll let Ren discuss for you. First on the list, we have Bitcoin Catalyst, the halving and spot ETF. Next, we have a view from the buy side from investors on things like strategy, portfolio, allocation and more we also have a topic on rwa's tokenization and stable points which i think we can all agree are going to play a large role in crypto's future we'll also talk about global regulatory frameworks like compliance best practices and the evolution of global standards that are shaping the global investment landscape we'll also have someone from the institutional front to talk about infrastructure such as banking and payments with financial giants like visa and jp morgan and last on the list the macro case for digital assets so don't miss out on this monumental event seats are limited so be sure to register today by hitting the link in the description and using the promo code 0x10 to save 10% on tickets. See you in London. I have a quick, slightly nerdy question. Um, I was thinking of like atomic bundles as they are on like either Ethereum or Solana. And I was thinking, A, like, well, what does it look like on Sway if someone submitted like an atomic bundle that included like a normal, like simple, fast path transaction and maybe like a shared and a transaction that interacts with a shared object or even like just is there MEV on say today what does that look like so he has this um, mechanism called programmable transaction blocks programmable transaction blocks doesn't let you deal with just instructions as some people try and do 
it lets you actually um, if essentially write a, um, a, a transaction that can effectively um, bundle over 1,024 heterogeneous transactions in an atomic way together. So we actually have that today on Sui. If you look at what's happening with flashbots and things like that, these are all PTBs. So you can, in one transaction, do a transaction on a, buy buy um, a, a token on a DEX. Within that same transaction, take the token you've purchased, put it into a lending protocol, borrow, do a you know a flash loan directly against the, that asset, and then do some kind of um, you know some optimization trade on DBook, which is a central limit order book on on chain, and do that all in one single transaction. And the user only has to click one button without without having to wait. And it's all or nothing. If any of those transactions fail or the condition is not met, it doesn't. If, if all you've done is pay gas, it's actually very, very cheap. So it's another way where you know any kind of parallel system needs to have a mechanism for batching, right? So you can effectively even batch transactions in one go and, and save a lot on the gas. So three thousand twenty-four. Correct. So yeah. from Sui's perspective, it's the most advanced scheme that any chain actually has. It's not just commands. You're talking about I can call individual smart contracts. I could take the input out of one, roll into the other, and do that all the way through up to 1,024 transactions. It's really just the limit we've imposed for now. There's no reason why it can't be higher. But, you know, that is a scheme that we see. It's allowing DeFi on Suite to take off significantly. You you have this, what we call is real composability that you actually get on Suite now. It's permissionless composability. You don't need to write a new smart contract. You can basically construct this program transaction block, you don't need the protocol to give you a hook to participate in this. They don't even need to know, right? You can just compose your, you know, these into one and you can do flash loans and all that. We saw that the other day. We we're like, wait, somebody who is unknown just did what? 400 million worth of transactions using these bots, basically using these flash loans and, and, and borrow and then do some trade and then pay back like that, right? Um, yeah, it's it's really powerful. Gotcha. Follow up question then. When I think of sort of like the object oriented model, right? Um, I know it's slightly different, but Solana has seen some seen some headaches with developers that lock accounts because when you write a transaction on Solana, you need to specify which account you want to lock. Does Sway have problems like that? And how is Sway thinking about its fee markets today? And are there any like problems that you guys are running into? So I don't know the precise answer to your question. I don't know that level of details. Perhaps that's something we can come back with. Uh, but what we have is testimony from veteran Solana developers saying, no, this is not like Solana. You don't have to specify all these things up front. The, the boilerplate code is so much smaller. The developer experience is, depending on who you ask, is some say it's like three, four times better. Some say it's 10 times better than Solana. Um, so, but we'll, we'll, I don't know the details what you're talking about in terms of marketing accounts, so I can't answer you. Um, the, the fee market, yes, we support local fee market and that's the only way, right? So remember, very, very important one, the design principle we have is predictability. Predictability comes in two forms. One is if I'm a developer, I want to use your infrastructure. I know you're not going to run out capacity on me. The other one is that you're not going to surprise me by jacking up the price of the fee on my fee because somebody else is doing something really, really stupid. Uh, so like we have this auction process. We have this uh, kind of basically stabilization mechanism, even if the token price shoot up or goes down, right? It's just going to be staying stable relative to the fiat. 
relative for the epoch, right? The 24 hours, they're going to, you're going to know exactly how much you're paying, basically, more or less, like within a very, very small range. So, uh, yeah, so, so it's, it's a, uh, the fee market wise, you, you should think about is globally stable. Locally, if you have something really, really, really hot, well, yes, you can have a fee market say, well, this is in contention, right? Millions of people are touching on this auction. You probably want to jack out the price. Uh, so there is a mechanism, but both local and fee and, 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 and global. On, on the account locking question, um, it's not an issue in SWE, um, prelim, primarily because SWE's lowest unit of compute is an object, strongly typed object. Um, in SWE, all you deal with is an object. You specify the object you're dealing with, and then you put that into a contract or you engage with it directly. You don't have to worry about abstract concepts that are alien to developers like accounts or things like that. You're simply dealing with strongly typed objects. That is a user experience that most developers are actually can actually grok very, very quickly, and which is why people are finding you know, to write an application in Solana is like in glass. We're chewing glass, as they say, but writing something in Swiss is very, very akin to what they're used to in any other strongly typed uh, programming language. So, yeah, that, that model doesn't exist. That problem doesn't exist in Swiss. I guess following up there, uh, I think we've heard like pretty good experiences from just like the developers we've talked to. We have some developers launched like similar protocols from, from Solana onto C, and they say that the DevX is like a 10x improvement. So, to follow up, could you mind? Uh, would you mind going a bit deeper into why specifically is the DevX so superior on Sui? Is it move? Is it the object-oriented data model or something else? It, it's, it's everything, right? So, so we are, it's an opinionated developer experience. Uh, we take a lot of the things that are taken care of you, right? Starting from move, right? Basically, uh, in terms of security, define a way a lot of class of problems that's common in smart contract language, right? That saves a ton of headache for developers off the bat. Then the object model really allow you to do things, compose things much more freely, much more easily. Uh, and that's that's what it's about, right? So with three move, we, we did a lot more of uh, also runtime enforcement, uh, everything around ownership object, right? So remember, this is a coordination smart contract coordinating who gets to use the assets who's touching it only one right it's like all the things you have to do is like making sure you you verify ownership uh right so so you know if you forgot a ownership check you you, you you're going to end up with re-entrancy attack that sort of thing is taken care of at the runtime as well you know at the language level as it was a runtime right so so the ownership model owned or or you know, or not, or shared object, right? The things, rules around that is all taken care of at the runtime. So that these all come together, object model makes huge difference. Just in terms of you thinking about programming, in the modern programming, everybody understands what objects oriented programming model look like, whether that's, we don't believe it's a great fit for everything a smart contract because of manipulating assets, right? So that model makes it really, really easy. And you'll have strongly uh, static type. You have, then you can build better tools. Uh, one thing people may not be aware of is it's when you talk about dynamic type versus static type, right? It's, 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 it's a trade-off between uh, speed, ease of getting on board versus, well, getting it right, right? It's for smart contract because ultimately everything's, you, you spend all your energy on making sure it's right. 
So this is the right model. And this is actually trading off. This is not even a trade-off to consider. This is better for efficiency, for getting things right. So, and that will allow you to build much better tooling because when you have static type information, your tools are going to be better, can do analysis for you. And also the model uh, of code and, right? So in, in Solidity, you're probably familiar, a smart contract carries states. So the code is actually not reusable, right? As, about, uh, as opposed to move, there's a separation. So your code is a bundle you can reuse. So reusability is also help with modularity also help with developer experience all these things add up so i'm hearing like 10x dev experience infinite scalability like all of these things that everyone wants to accomplish in blockchains but candidly setting bias aside what would you say is sui's biggest pain point today and how do you guys plan on addressing it well i think getting our words out making sure people understand our design or thinking why we do things a certain way for people to even be aware the blockchains are very different right you don't take your traditional blockchain and move on top and say all of a sudden he's like yes problem solved uh that's an incremental improvement it's a big improvement but it's not how we design suite so that's the biggest pain point is to making sure people understand that's you know, yeah. why we design suite this way and why you need to come suite. And without them actually, you know, because it's just so noisy out there, right? It's just so noisy in the space. It's hard to get the, the words out. People just think about, oh, parallelization as if it's all the same thing, um, you know. And, and why is this important? Well, it's another thing that's a real big pain point is like, I think this collective for the whole industry, I think we can be honest with ourselves. Like people outside the industry, a lot of them have very negative, views about the industry think about a bunch of silly stuff or even worse you know bad actors uh, and we need to change that uh, so we're seeing good progress there but it's not we're not there yet we're not at a point where every big company is like okay it's time to use the blockchain to solve our you know customer royalty problem or customer engagement problem even our privacy problem or or, or you know, all these other problems that's, that's perfectly suited to be solved by, by a public blockchain and people not, not really understanding it. Sometimes they, they're like sensitive because of all the bad press around it. Uh, so these are the pain points. I wanted to spend some time on the consumer side of things. Adani, you mentioned sort of like offline payments and perhaps in like Web2 payment systems like WeChat Pay, you have offline payments, uh, M-Pesa in Africa, you're able to pay over like cell service. How does offline payments on street work? Would you mind walking through it? Do that. Um, there's not much I can share yet. We're holding some of that back, but I can tell you that our while we're at Facebook, our goal was essentially to enable everybody in the world with a phone, with a cell phone, anybody in the world with any kind of device that has any form of radio to communicate with one one another. So you're going to see us launch this year um, a scheme that allows any phone in the world. Any device that has, whether it's Bluetooth, whether it's VSAT, doesn't matter, to actually transact on the Sweet blockchain. And you could do that without a full-blown internet connection as well. Whether, you know, and, and th these are the things, and by the time you marry things like, um, you know, deep in on top of that, it's going to be a game changer. We think th this is where Web3 really needs to go in taking the technology to where people are. Everything we've done, if you think about ZK Login, where users are right now is their Web2 accounts. We bring the technology to them. Now, where users are with very basic phones where whether it's whether it's some device that has a very 
bad connection. It doesn't matter wherever you are in the world. We want to ensure that anybody in the world can can gain access to this um, ledger that we built. So you're going to hear some news around that um, with some partners, hopefully sometime this year. But our goal is really um, to really change the narrative on Web3 being just purely speculative, but a fundamental piece of infrastructure that people use day in, day out. Yeah, one thing I'll point out, just a, a sort of almost like a prerequisite for um, offline payments to be possible is you need to break this uh, interaction model in, in crypto payment. It's like, well, you need to download a wallet on the recipient side. You need to tell me your public key. Yes, there are some apps that can abstract away, but you're not at the, doing it at a fundamentally at the protocol level. Uh, you're beholden to a third party. So unilateral payment is the key. Right. This is something back at Novi, back at Facebook, we couldn't do. Right. We knew that that was a limitation of the technology. Think about like I just want to know, Rain, okay, give me your phone number. I know your phone number. I know your email account. I want to send a payment to you. I don't care if you have a sweet address or not a wallet or, or even sweet tokens to pay for gas. I can just send the payments to you. That's unilateral payment. And that is what ZK Login and ZK Send has already proven to be possible. And that's the prerequisite to be able to do this kind of offline payment for the masses. You mentioned the sweet token there, and I find it interesting that, you know, a lot of projects in crypto are trying to, you know, provide more utility to their token. And it seems like in your guys' case, you're almost trying to remove some of the utility by like gasless transactions, seamless user experience, which I strongly believe is this like the right way to go. But I'm just kind of curious, how do you see in the grand scheme of things, SWE playing a role in the SWE ecosystem? I mean, the gas is always there, right? Gasless means somebody else paying for you, right? A product paying for you. This is not a new model. Somebody is paying the infrastructure cost. It's just not the consumer. It's solving the onboarding problem. So uh, SWE will forever have a lots and lots of this value. Yes, we're not like, Ethereum is like almost arguing the expensive uh, overhead or cost is good for the token or some odd, weird reason. Like that's like, this is how big the piece of pie you have, right? And you try to capture as much as the pie. We believe in growing the pie. So growing the pie means, yes, the gas prices needs to be low. The friction has to be removed, all these sort of things. But ultimately, we want what we want to reach is what you can imagine every product, every every interaction on the internet may in, involve a blockchain and transaction on the blockchain and that's the that's where we're going and that we're talking about millions of interaction per second this is even old numbers from 2021 somewhere around 5 million per second so that's where we're going so don't think near term think long term uh to get to that kind of skill you have to remove all these frictions all the things that's holding it back so if you think think of think of SWE, there are a limited number of tokens, but infinite amount of TPS, right? Or transaction you can do. So the goal is to get as much transactions on SWE as possible. That's the goal. We, you don't want SWE to be a commodity. SWE needs to be a utility. That's something people use on a daily, daily basis, whether they recognize they're using it or not. That's the ultimate goal. And our goal is to drive as much um, transactions onto the network by the applications who are actually finding value in using it as possible. And SWE has that capacity. But more importantly, I think SWE enables people to actually build things that they could not build in Web3 or Web2. So we think marry all those schemes together, it just makes it for a great opportunity for developers to come in and build some uh, amazing applications. 
I guess as a follow-up question to that then, um, I know Sui, the token has a finite supply of 10 billion, and that's a very different dynamic from perhaps other proof-of-stake networks such as Ethereum, Solana, which both have flexible monetary policy, if that's the right word. But you mind just sort of going through why that design decision and how you guys are thinking about long-term monetary policy or why like a finite supply and perhaps how like the storage fund and on-chain data requirements plays into those dynamics. I wish we had Alonzo on a call. Alonzo is our chief economist. Uh, he designed the entire scheme. I don't know if you want to jump in. I'm happy to. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's actually a little bit deflationary. Uh, this is the part people don't understand, right? Because when you have the storage fund and then later on you get it back, but there's a part of forever there, right? So the more you store on-chain, there are actually fewer tokens are actually available in circulation. And so over time, that's actually a deflationary, uh, you know, not your traditional sense, right? You burn in tokens, but they are essentially locked away in the storage fund. Um, so I think we believe this is the right design because ultimately you want to get to the point where you're not almost like, a, you know, like you don't create this artificial incentive for the network participant to just have free money, put it that way. Because uh, if you print more, you have, and then you just basically can just have infinite uh, subsidi subsidies, right? Which is probably an easier way to go, but it's probably not the right thing because you really do, right? The, the principle of it is to have the finite uh, number of tokens and, and encourage utility and making sure there's enough activities on chain. The utility can, can sustain uh, the, you know, sort of the upkeep, uh, the, the cost uh, for the, that incurred by by the network participants. So that's the general principle of it. Um, but the deflationary part perhaps is too subtle and we have really haven't talked about it much. But that's that's very key as well. Yeah, another thing to consider with SWE, it, it actually validators are actively um, voting every epoch to set the gas price. And the reason for that is it creates an element of competition, but also it actually encourages gas fees to always stay low and if if anything flat with respects to the dollar. And that's actually true. If you look at Swedish gas prices over over time, it's actually been flat, even in the periods of very high usage. When there was inscriptions and other networks and it took people down, Sweet, it was almost boring. Nothing happened because the, ga the gas never changed. Transactions went through the roof, but nobody noticed because it could handle the, the load. Um, the reason why we designed it that way is validators every single day have to effectively quote what gas price they're willing to charge. And they quote that as close to their cost as possible. If they quote too high, they earn less fees because others lower will earn a majority of a share. If they quote too low, they end up they basically end up losing money because they're quoting less than the actual cost. So we've seen this scheme work really, really well over the last eight, uh, over the last nine months since mainnet, where validators are actively quoting price on a daily basis, and the price has actually been relatively stable. So it's a it's a it's a sustainable economic model that we've designed. There's a 26-page paper on the Sweet Tokenomics that talks about these designs, including the storage fund, that spells this whole thing out as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two principles you have to remember when you think about Sweet Design. Is one is we're designing with the developers in mind first and foremost, what they need, how they build a sustainable business. Um, you know, and then the second is the free market dynamic, right? We want the market to basically decide for itself through competition, uh, fair, open competition, uh, not you know, subsidy can only take you so far. Uh, eventually, yeah, the market dynamic dictates everything. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I can admire the fact that you're taking a, a little bit of a different approach than, you know, copy and pasting what's already been done in the industry. So kudos to you guys on that. But you mentioned earlier that uh, there's a lot of different DAP ideas that you can think of that really are only possible on Suite. Can you kind of dive into maybe one or two of those that each of you guys are excited about and maybe whether or not projects are actively building that idea? So what's already started to happen, you probably see it soon, is every app in the Suite ecosystem will allow you to log in using Web2. Right, every app. It's not you have to have a wallet. It means you, Blue Bluefin in the next week is launching this as well, where you can log into the app with your Web2 account and instantly. This is a by the way, this is a self-custodial login. It's not a custod, uh, you know, uh, you know, one where they take ownership of your keys and they have your password. It is a self-custodial model where you log in with your Google account. You'd have you know the ability to trade with fifty dollars for free and start engaging. Think about what that does for onboarding for Web3 applications. We think now apps in Sui can get a lot more adoption than apps in other ecosystems because they've opened up the door to onboard the next billion users using traditional incentive schemes. So that's what we're very, very excited about. And on top of that, you have apps start to give you the ability to transact without ever worrying about addresses. So if I want to send money from what I'm trading on Bluefin to what I'm doing on Navi as a lending protocol, you could just use human readable names to do that without to worry about actual on-chain addresses. We think the experiences you can build on Sui will be very different to experiences that you can build on other chains and in Web2. In Web2, assets are locked in your silo. Now you have freedom of movement of assets. Users for the first time will have the idea that I have this asset in this ecosystem or in this particular application and I can move it freely between other applications. We think that's very, very unique um, to Sui. Yeah, another thing I want to touch on is the different, right? So the category kind of uh, applications, I want to take a step back and think about what blockchain was meant to do in the first place is replacing human, disintermediation. So in a way, I can say Sui is the first one that can disintermediate human. Uh, what does that mean? The problem with, say, the current model, ESC721, trading NFTs, Familiar example, you have familiar story you heard. Everybody stopped dropping enforcement of royalties because the royalty enforcement was done by who? Human, not code, not software, not pre-verified software. It's fundamentally broken model, and that I won't I don't have time to go into the, all the details. But but this this interface model defining a, a standard that everybody have to come together and agree upon doesn't work. So you are fundamentally failing as a disintermediation. So the other thing we have seen right now is that, okay, I need a private chain. I need an app chain. I need a subnet because I want to control everything. Who are the participants? I want to control how the assets are being used and all that. Also, the one we think about is, right? Think about permission assets on top of permissions blockchain. What does a permission assets mean? It's all these rules you want to enforce. If I want to require KYC ML, that's permission. If I just want to enforce royalty payment, that's permission in some way. If I want to say, you, I can only trade this to you when you know the trade can only complete if you agree to tweet about this uh, experience on chain, you can do this. So that's the mental model. This is what you can build with Sui because you actually have this asset-centric view. These assets are not just token that represent ownership of asset actually live off chain. This is fully on chain asset. It's atomic asset that enforces rules itself. And that completely changed the game because now human representation and they can own assets 
and they can decide who has access to the asset. The coordination between human consumers and the products can be done at large scale because you can do, also do permissionless, permissionless composability at both at code at asset level. Like this really opens up the world. So again, very, very different mental model, but that's what yeah. we're striving for. Yeah, I imagine being able to say you could only trade in this pool if you have a JP Morgan account or you have an account with this particular kind of um, firm or whatever. You can verify the small contract on chain will verify that. In fact, the network itself can verify that engagement and allow the transactions to go through. It's a new form of model that I just don't think others are thinking about that it's, it's enabling. That is super interesting. And I know we've come up on time. So thank you guys so much for taking an hour out of your busy schedules to come on. Do you guys want to share any closing thoughts or where they can learn more about SWE or, you know, your individual Twitter handles, whatever you want to close with, uh, with the listeners? Yeah, you could go to SWE.io. That's the best place. We actually have a new um, learning SWE or intro to SWE um, course you could take. It's actually very, very easy. You get to learn more about the paradigms that make SWE unique. And also Move as well. We've got a page that's dedicated to Move that allows you to learn a lot about why the language is so easy to use and gives you some really great examples you can build with. Um, I'm on Twitter. It's at E-M-A-N-A-B-I-O. Um, and Evan, I don't know if there's anything you want to add. I'm uh, Evan Webstreet uh, on Twitter. Easy to remember. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. We will be sure to uh, bring you guys back on in you know, six months to get a checkup from you guys if you're free. So... Uh, until next time, take, easy, take it easy. Thanks very much, folks. Hey, everyone. Thanks for watching today's ZeroX Research episode. I wanted to take a second and remind you about our upcoming 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Seats are limited, so hit the link in the description and use the promo code 0x10 to save 10% on tickets. See you in London.